Layered Insight is the industry's first embedded security approach for containers. Trusted by Global 1000 Enterprises to secure their containerized applications, it's the only solution that requires no root privileges, has zero dependency on the underlying infrastructure, and is fully portable across any container environment. Unified DevOps and SecOps, enabling the rapid development of containerized applications without worrying about security. To learn more, please visit layeredinsight.com forward slash ASW. Rapid7 powers the practice of SecOps. Using shared data, analytics, and automated workflows, SecOps unites IT, DevOps, and security teams to make security an outcome of innovation. Rapid7 combines technology, expertise, and advocacy to drive vulnerability management, application security, incident detection, and log management for more than 7,000 organizations worldwide. Power up your SecOps practice with a free trial at rapid7.com forward slash securityweekly. Hard-coded credentials can be trouble, but not as much trouble as a vulnerable DevOps environment. If you want protection without the hassle of security slowing you down, CyberArk, the number one provider in privilege access security, has the solution for you. With CyberArk Conjure, developers can easily secure secrets across any DevOps toolchain or platform, whether your application runs in the cloud or on-premises. Eliminate the headaches of managing secrets and try Conjure open source for free with no strings attached. Visit conjure.org forward slash ASW to get started today. Signal Sciences is the industry's first web protection platform that works in any cloud, any container, any platform as a service, and any modern application architecture. The Signal Sciences web protection platform can be deployed in next generation WAF, RASP, or reverse proxy modes, giving customers ultimate flexibility and coverage. Protect your web applications with Signal Sciences web protection platform. Signal Sciences, protecting applications, connecting teams. For more information, check them out at signalsciences.com forward slash PSW. Welcome back, everyone, to Application Security Weekly. This is the news for the week of May 13th. Sorry, I had to look at my calendar there. Uh, so one of the things I wanted to cover quickly is uh, I didn't put it in the show notes. I got to go back and re-add it. But Trustwave just came out with uh, some interesting information about the vulnerability we talked about a couple of weeks ago in Electron, uh, which is CVE 2018-1000, uh, so 1000136. I'm uh, talking about the node integration and a good write-up on this. So. Um, yeah, the fact that, you know, today Electron is building things like Slack, VS Code, uh, I don't know, probably a bunch of other things that I'm not even thinking about right now. Is it, what, now what is Electron, Keith? Is that like Node, is that like, it's JavaScript, right? Or no? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's a, it's a, a JavaScript framework for uh, native application development for your desktop. So um, the way that it works is effectively you can write up uh, your whole application in JavaScript and then you can stub out certain calls that JavaScript is like a, a browser because it all kind of sits on top of Chromium, right? It uses the V8 engine. Mm -hmm. um, you have to stub out certain function calls. So you can actually stub them out and then have them call things like C program uh, language to actually then do a compiled binary of like C. So if you want to do a proxy, for example, in Electron, you'd have to use C's, uh, pro the mm -hmm. C programming language's proxy functionality stubbed out inside of a JavaScript call with an Electron. Gotcha. Um, so it's a framework that allows you to develop native applications that can work across uh, operating systems very, very easily. Um, so and are you bundling? Yeah. Uh, so like when I download Slack or, or uh, VS Code, is there a browser engine included in that download? I don't know that there's necessarily the engine included in the download. I think it makes use of the Chrome or Chromium's um, engine itself that's on your system already. If you have, um, if you have it, Chrome. 
Yeah, if you have Chrome, I guess. I mean, I guess if you didn't, maybe there is like a, an additional install that's readily available gotcha. as like a backup to it. Okay. Um, but but to that end, what's interesting about this is because it is uh, ubiquitous, right? Like it's it's able to be used across all three platforms. Getting remote code execution in the framework, so in the Electron framework itself, is a problem because now as long as you know Bash or you know PowerShell or uh, well, I guess still Bash if you're you're on a MacBook or Mac OS. Um, you can basically just make remote code execution calls to the Electron app and then get the same level access as the application, which usually tends to be a high level access. Not always, but uh, in most cases it, it is. So uh, the write-up by Trustwave that I'm going to actually add into the show notes here uh, is pretty good. It's the Spider Labs blog on this, and it actually goes into like the functional level code as to what the problem is. Um, any additional questions about that, Paul, before we jump into maybe some of the other stories we have? Uh, nope. I'm just okay. reading, looking at the headline about Uber's self-driving car. Yeah, that um, that was interesting because I, I know that it happened a few weeks ago. We talked about it briefly on Paul Security Weekly, I think last week. But um, the thing that I found interesting about this is this is kind of a postmortem. And, and I don't mean that to be punny because someone actually died in this situation. But I know. Uh, I made a pun on the last... Paul Security Weekly. And I apologize for that. It was too soon. Yeah, it, it it really is one of those things where it's it's a tragic uh, accident, quite frankly. But they talk specifically about how this all came about. And so the woman who died was Elaine Herzberg uh, in Temp, Arizona, back in March. Uh, what ended up happening was the sensors on the car, even though it did detect that she was in front of the car, it determined that she was a, effectively a false positive. Um, and so this article, I think, had a very even-handed discussion about the problem set, which is that software needs to detect objects like cars, pedestrians, rocks, etc., uh, to you know potentially avoid them if they're actually you know a true positive. But the problem is is that uh, there are things like you know a plastic bag or perhaps a, a trash can on the side of the road that aren't really you don't terribly have to worry about them when it comes to driving. Right, you can kind of just keep going, and in effect, the way that the the software is written is so that the rider in the car has a positive experience which by the way is ultimately what leads to the sort of problem that occurred which is you get a false positive and then you hit somebody or something as a result because if you were too strict on the detection mechanism and you you know hit the brakes for every little thing Mm -hmm. the rider would be getting whiplash well uh, and my concern too is how to differentiate between small dogs, children, and adults different from there's some other kind of object like a garbage can that blew, like this is common, right? And garbage day, after all the trash is picked up, it gets windy. Garbage can ends up in the road. How does the sensor then differentiate between a living thing and the garbage can, right? And that, that can be very difficult with the sensors that they might put on a car. And of course, your false positive has very negative consequences, obviously. We talked about this, actually, when we did an interview with uh, RF something company, I can never remember the name of, that uses um, radio waves, radio frequency waves, to identify objects outside of a physical perimeter of a building. And they're able to determine, based on movement and the reflection back from the radio waves, if something is, in fact, a drone or a bird, right? Because they behave differently and they can do that level of detection i'd imagine the same kind of machine learning and to a certain extent artificial intelligence is has to be built into the cars 
it'd be a kind of a cool thing to merge that technology, you know, such that they're sending out some kind of signal, receiving it back to enumerate objects that are in front of them, make the determination, is it, is it something I need to stop for or I don't? I would imagine now the software is probably going to err more on the side of caution uh, than not. Because uh, again, how do you differentiate between living animals and, and something that's not? Because it can still be moving in the street. And, and to that end, it's one of those situations as well where um, I think that there will be a few different phases of release for automatic driving vehicles, right? Uh, I don't know exactly the the layout of Temp, Arizona in terms of, of being a city or a town, for example. Right. Um, but I, I can foresee this being the sort of thing that Tesla has already kind of done this today, which is you can use kind of the autopilot functionality on things like major highways, right? where you don't expect to have things other than a car or mm -hmm. uh, an animal. You don't expect to see people, bicycles, small children. Um, and, and so to that end, uh, there's probably a, a middle path here, which is to say that for the time being, using a car in a low-speed environment where it's easy to break uh, and it's not necessarily going to break quickly in a way that actually hurts the, the rider of the vehicle you could probably err more on the side of caution and be a little bit more cautious in the way that it drives through a city, right? Now, if you get out into a suburb, on the other hand, that is just rife for problems because it's generally a faster speed limit, but it's also one of those situations where you probably have more children, more animals, you know, uh, pets, and, and generally just people, right? People walking around. Well, yeah, I mean, um, it, but it's an AI problem. I mean, there are security ramifications, right? What if someone's able to yeah. disrupt that subsystem? But it's an AI problem because as a human, when you see a ball go out in front of your car, you know that likely there's a child that's going to follow. And when you see the ball, you know from being trained as a driver that you have to slow down and or stop. Uh, how do you train software to do? And obviously there are ways in, in artificial intelligence. But you know, in this case, it literally is a life or death situation. And if there is no human operator, no human override, it has to be completely autonomous which is kind of scary for me as in all of us that know software, right? That's kind of scary. Yeah. Yeah. And to that end as well, it's, it's a situation where um, I think part of the solution to that problem, Paul will ultimately rely on the on board or the in-car tech being fast enough to make those computations yep. and come to correct answers uh, quickly. Right. So the tech today is good. I mean, it's at the point where they can actually, you know, do this sort of thing and test it, but in a way, it's going to need to get faster and more efficient in order for it to truly be able to get that level of learning and that level of knowledge into the car itself. Um, so we're probably like five years off from that, I would think. I mean, just given some of the recent announcements and chipset development, but mm -hmm. we're we're not there yet um, is probably um, probably what I would have to say. And I think Johnny Johnny yeah, saying was Spotter. it Logan Harris from Spotter RF? Yes, thanks, Johnny Blaze. Yeah, he's on it. So what else we got? Um, I was going to say, moving on. So it looks like uh, Apple has a text bombs effect where, you know, yet again, uh, WhatsApp and iMessage are now falling prey to Unicode characters, where if you click on the black dot of death, uh, you'll ultimately end up losing uh, your, your phone's connectivity. Basically, it will, it will quote unquote, die. You just got to restart it. Um, so I don't know. I mean, that's here we are talking about self-driving cars, and yet we still haven't solved the Unicode problem. Uh, any thoughts there, Paul? Well, you know, it's interesting. I've seen a lot of issues with specifically iOS and it's uh, receiving messages and have those 
cause some type of either denial of service condition or some other security problem. I've seen some of these widely publicized. I've seen other ones where uh, it's kind of like an underground, like they're not reporting it to Apple or really even posting, like you just kind of stumble across it and you're like, wow, that's an issue. Like if I send someone this text message and they open it or click on something in the text message, you know, their phone locks up kind of thing. I'm not sure how devastating some of those attacks could be, how far someone could take it, but there's certainly been a, a track record of those issues happening specifically on iOS, which tells me the code that's receiving messages definitely has flaws. And I think this really goes back to a fundamental programming problem of, you know, parsing and also even deeper than that, uh, being able to work with different character sets and displaying those character sets properly certainly has been the root cause, you know, in, in that type of, uh, issue that's, that's pretty big in, in when you're writing code, I got to take it into account this format or that format. You know, I see it in our own Python application. If you're copying and pasting text and you paste in some funky Unicode characters like, oh, internal server error or some heinous Python error because you're not catching all those um, exceptions. It's kind of interesting we see a similar problem with, you know, very commercial with thousands of developers, you know, uh, on the team or more. We still see the same kind of issues. Yeah, to that end, it's one of those situations where um, it's it's a markets of scale problem, right? Because if all you were doing was, say, a market in China and a market in the U.S. and you yes. only used English and you know Chinese characters, you're good. But the fact that you are in so many markets around the world, uh, you end up running into that problem of trying to serve them all, and the code that you originally built was not designed to uh, to serve them all. So. Uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to see, you know, when they eventually kind of go back and refactor that set of code. Um, I did want to move on to another story, though, under the bugs, breaches, and more. It's uh, number three, which is remote row hammer, uh, also being called as throw hammer, uh, is is a new uh, white paper that just came out. What was interesting about this to me is uh, when I was taking classes at University of New Hampshire, I worked at the uh, UNH Interoperability Lab, or IOL, and I worked specifically in their remote direct memory access uh, kind of, you know, suite of testing that they were doing. And as it turns out, uh, these researchers at University of Cyprus found that if they were using said systems that had remote direct memory access uh, enabled and, and were working in that kind of environment, they could remotely uh, perform row hammer attacks against the servers. Uh, so they could do bit flipping uh, at will of a remote server just because of this remote direct memory access technology. I thought this was really cool and kind of scary because they could do it over the local area network. So you still got to get onto the network to begin with. Um, but knowing what I know about the kinds of companies and organizations that are using remote direct memory access, um, kind of scary because it's probably something that's actually being used out in the cloud all over the place. Um, Paul, what, what questions do you have about this story? I'm happy to answer any questions you might have on remote direct memory access because when I was encountering it, it sounded like a bad idea. Yeah, I, but I thought what I don't remember the Rohammer attack. To be honest with you, um, was this what's the difference between local and and remote in the context of this attack? Sure, sure. So for the Rohammer attack, as it started, was effectively bit flipping on DRAM so that you could get a, a bit of memory to change, which would allow you possibly to change like provisions, uh, like permissions, or even the way that a code a bit of code is operating. So. Um, the local aspect of Rohammer was you had to effectively get malware onto the system and mm -hmm. then execute code to then uh, try to escalate privilege via, you know, basically brooding 
uh, memory so that if you look, if you figured out where in memory you were for your code and where the memory is that you wanted to get access to, you could flip bits to effectively change the underlying code that was running in that memory sector that would maybe allow you to execute remote code or escalate your own internal privilege on your process so that you could then take that attack further. But you had to first get malware on the device. Right. Now, the remote aspect to this is it's using a technology called Remote Direct Memory Access, or RDMA. Now, RDMA is used in cloud environments. Mm -hmm. It's used in uh, high-frequency trading. It's used in uh, aerospace uh, you know, companies doing data analytics. And the way that it works effectively is you kind of have like a, a server a master and then a bunch of uh, clients. And what you can do is you can allocate memory on other clients, so other servers in your rack, to say, I am anticipating a bunch of data. I would like to send you a bunch of uh, you know, data or information to store in your memory that we can then write off to external storage. In fact, my Twitter profile picture is uh, is one of those network access storage devices inside of that remote direct memory access lab that I was working in. Hmm. Uh, so it was a four foot by four foot NAS that we called Dexter uh, for Dexter's laboratory. So my Twitter picture is exactly that, that NAS and why I have the headgear on is because it was loud. Uh, so to that end, what they figured out is if I can get my server to tell a bunch of clients, hey, I'm going to be passing things over to your memory to then offload to storage, I need you to, to set up to be a client. There's no like security protocol here. If RDMA is basically turned on by default, or at least um, when I was working in it, there was no security protocols here. So if I can just say, hey, I'm going to allocate a bunch of stuff to your memory, and it doesn't go through the CPU, it doesn't go through uh, any other sort of profiling, it goes directly into the memory of that device, I can now perform Rohammer attacks across the network using this kind of server client architecture, which means that if I'm in a cloud environment, I can change bits on somebody else's server running different processes uh, that may in fact allocate or allow me to then um, start, you know, start messing around with the server environment itself, which is all kinds of bad. So and what's the fix for this? Ultimately, it ends up coming down to uh, the, the hardware level, right? So if RDMA is a situation where the technology is intended to work that you can allocate memory across your environment, um, there are certain types of RAM. I don't know if it's uh, DRAM4. I'm trying to recall exactly what it is now, but there are certain types of, of memory that are not vulnerable to this type of attack uh, just because of the resilience of uh, those bits that are being held in in, uh, in the RAM itself and the actual chip. Um or chips, I should say, on the, the RAM sticks. So, um, yeah, it's, it's one of those situations where the only fix is to replace your hardware, and uh, the hardware that can you know is resilient to this type of attack is pretty expensive. So when you're in a server environment or a server cluster, you're not buying the most expensive RAM for every server. You just want it to be fast enough to be able to accept information and then offload it to disk. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's basically a... You're screwed if somebody gets into your environment. You've got RDMA, and uh, and they can intelligently row hammer your devices. Mm. So, uh, moving on, I did want to cover uh, one story under the "If you build it, they will come" section, which is uh, Mark Rosinovich, uh, CTO of Microsoft Azure, uh, was speaking last week about confidential cloud in the Azure environment, which I thought was pretty cool because uh, they're going the way of trusted execution environments, or TEE, mm -hmm. as they refer to it which is incredibly important, especially in this situation that we just talked about, right? right? Where you need to be able to execute code, uh, you know, securely. We uh, need so, to execute only your own code and not someone else's. 
Yes, that's the other kind of the point. Well. <laughs> <laughs> and well, so in, in cloud environments, it tells you that Microsoft is thinking about this at a level where you you can't even necessarily trust the hardware, right? So one right. of the first things that they talk about is the hardware that they've they've brought in is Intel Xeon processors with SGX technology uh, in the East Azure region or East US Azure region, uh, which has got hardware based features and functionality that allow you to make sure you're executing only your own code um, inside of that environment and that there's effectively no visibility into that except for you. Uh, you you running that, can you're good, but nobody else can come in and kind of manipulate the code being run uh, in that environment. They've also done some stuff with uh, compute. So talking about managing computer instances and trusted execution environments, again, using that Intel ZM processor technology uh, developments, so in terms of API, so trying to build out API security at a station, which I thought was interesting, um, which is verifying the identity of the code that's running. And then, of course, uh, looking at services and use cases as well as research. I thought this was a, a cool story. I don't know, Paul, if you had a chance to read it at all. Uh, I did not. I, I think we should get Mark Rasinovich back on the show, though, one of our shows. Absolutely. Maybe this show. Absolutely. Um, I would love to talk with them about it, yeah. especially with all the stuff that they're doing on Azure Sphere. Uh, yes. And, you know, some other stuff that they're doing in the Azure space. So I know that we're, we're hopefully going to be getting someone for the Azure Sphere team on the show in the near future. Uh, so stay tuned for that. Speaking of, um, you know, hardware vulnerabilities, by the way, uh, Paul, I don't know if you caught that uh, in this case, multiple operating system vendors have released security patches after misinterpreting Intel documentation related to Meltdown Inspector yet again. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't this Microsoft's kind of excuse for a vulnerability Way back, I, I remember covering a vulnerability from Microsoft, and basically it stemmed from the misinterpretation uh, of the documentation. Which, I mean, we talk about RFCs, right, and how they aren't as descriptive as they need to be, and everyone kind of has their slight uh, interpretation of the RFCs, and that yep. problem specifically comes about when you look at the various implementations of your TCP/IP stacks, especially on embedded systems. And like, why when you send this packet to that system, does it crash? And why when you send it to this system, does it send a, a reset? And why when you send it to that system, it gives you nothing back? And it turns out the answer is, because that's how the developers interpreted the RFC. And that story just reminded me of this of this article. No, that's, that's absolutely the, the problem that they're actually blaming here is, is the fact that it was unclear or incomplete documentation. It makes me wonder if they write the documentation uh, in that way, either because they're concerned about uh, other companies coming in and stealing intellectual property because now they understand exactly how it works, um, or or if it's a situation where it's you know people developing the hardware aren't you know just building proper documentation, you know that wouldn't surprise me at all if that well, was the case. Given I also think a, a a likely scenario, at least in my mind, is that if you make the documentation too specific and too limiting as a result that when you are considering what technology to use, you're like, oh, I don't want to use that because it's it's oddly specific and it doesn't give me enough flexibility. Whereas if you make it a little less specific, they're like, oh yeah, I can like I can work with that. I can work that in my application. So some of it could be before adoption. I'm not sure that's just a, a, a wild ass guess. You know, that, that makes a lot of sense though uh, in, in regards to you want it to be open enough that people can interpret it and then run with it, right? So it gives mm -hmm. the the people that are using your platform, the ability to build an edge, right? If they figure out a clever way to, to perform um, some sort of right. task or functionality on your hardware, 
now they can be competitive in the marketplace and therefore they end up using all of your hardware for it, um, which allows you to succeed as well as a business. So um, yeah, I can see that that could be the case. And, and to that end, uh, what was interesting here though is effectively the problem related to uh, debug exceptions in the x86-64 architecture instructions that would allow for a ring three or user space operating system components uh, to make calls down to ring zero uh, basically just, you know, going from straight user to root on the, the operating system as a result of the vulnerabilities that existed for a Meltdown Inspector. So I think the, the coolest thing or the coolest takeaway from this story, though, is that it was like Mac OS, uh, OpenBSD, uh, Windows, and a number of others all cooperated on releasing this patch at the same time. Uh, which I thought was was a big deal because we saw the debacle of all the patches that just got you know totally borked at the beginning of the year. This is a this is a good turning point, I think. Talk to me about DevSecOps flow. Ah, so this is Pete Chesna from Vericode, who we're hoping to have on here, I think, in June. Okay. Uh, so so Pete and I disagree on the term DevOps versus DevSecOps, and he very cleverly puts in the beginning uh, an article by someone else saying that you know DevSecOps is just a term. I'm sure that Pete and I are going to discuss this, uh, mm-hmm. you know, deeply when he comes on the show. But um, what he starts to talk about here is some of the things about, you know, thinking about your relationship with development teams, which I thought was poignant because that's what we talked about last week. And also in his experience, just you know, going to conferences, is people saying, "Well, those developers are doing it wrong, or security keeps slowing us down." And I thought that that was kind of the big thing was, you know, what is your relationship like with your development team today, and could it be better? Because if it can be, it probably should be, and, it, and you need it to be ultimately to be successful as a security practitioner. Otherwise, you get ignored. Uh, the other thing that he talks about here is mutual accountability, which I thought was was interesting because he cites, basically, if they're in charge of developing it, then shouldn't they also be in charge of keeping it secure or like, at least you know responsible for that uh, or, feel, or even just a little bit feel accountable for it? Um, and I thought that that was a really good point because a lot of the time, and maybe this is why he uses the term DevSecOps, is developers don't feel responsible for security. They're not measured on it. And therefore, it's security's job to build the right architecture, configurations, deployments for them. And I think that that's probably the right way to proceed. But he, he kind of disagrees with us here in terms of they should be accountable. Therefore, it should be part of the term. Um, it was a good article overall. It's going to be a part one of a three-part series. I don't know if he's releasing it weekly or bi-weekly, but I imagine we'll, we'll follow up on the other two parts of the series as well uh, once he's released them. Yeah, I think um, it's just thought quick thought on this article that accountability is kind of like a, a pyramid in the developer's mind or like there's a priority, right? Developers, I think, in large part feel accountable to get features delivered out the door, I think they feel accountable to fix functional bugs first because there's a user that maybe can't use some piece of functionality. And I think security kind of falls like last if it's a sheer security issue in the traditional sense, right? And what I think DevOps allows you to do is have them treat all issues in a more equal manner and address problems kind of as you go so that you don't end up with too much technical debt such that the you know the the priority is a little more uh, balanced. That it's about creating reliable software, and whether that issue is you know a feature, a bug, which arguably sometimes are the same thing, or a security issue. Maybe all three of those are the same thing. Which I guess is my point: is you want to be addressing these issues 
as you go. And I think that's really the power of DevOps. But in a lot of environments today, like security is way down on the pecking order if it's viewed that way, right? If developers are viewing it, I'm accountable for this, you know, this software getting out, this version getting out. That's what they feel accountable for. I think the accountability needs to extend to has to go out and, and work, which is part of that. And security is certainly part of that. Yeah, it's more of a circle than a pyramid, right? It's yeah. uh, what percentage of their responsibility falls into each category as opposed to what are the priorities top down. Right. Um, so yeah, maybe somebody needs to make a DevOps pie chart as opposed to a DevOps pyramid. Uh, so anyway, with that, I just want to say there is one commit strip uh, article or comic here at the end and number four. Oh, for and I've, lived, I've lived that, dude. I've done, I've done happy dances for times maybe you shouldn't really do happy dances. Right. This is it's literally titled progress. So I think that for those sysadmins and other people out there, they'll enjoy that as well. With that, thank you everyone for joining us this week for another episode of Application Security Weekly. Remember to get commit and stay classy. <laughs>